listeners, my name is Jonathan Mahoney. I'm a personal trainer from Rochester Hills, and I'm here with Abbott George Burke to talk about the subject of evolution. How are you, Abbott George? Pretty evolved at the moment. <laughs> the subject is evolution, and if you're interested in this subject, I would recommend you pick up a copy of Abbott George Burke's book, Robe of Light, which is available on Amazon and his website, ocoy.org. Um, and from Robe of Light, we have the quote, the drama of creation simply states is this, God breathes forth this vast universe. Slowly it comes out and evolves according to set patterns. Then after a precise measure of time, he breathes it back in again, involves it, and it vanishes. This he does eternally. Um, so I guess right off the bat, could you give us your definition of evolution and how it relates to the individual? Well, actually, literally, it means to move out of. In other words, we begin our journey uh, by coming into relative existence, which is done by long stages. It isn't just a matter that one time we're in kind of a transcendental condition and then suddenly just sort of like an apple falling off a tree, it comes down very quickly. Actually, we have to move slowly into each level. And in each level, we take on um, a subtle layer of energy, which we could call a body. And once we're fully sort of locked into that, we don't, I don't mean we spend like days and weeks and months, uh, who knows how long it takes, but it just be enough as like when you pull on a shoe and it, you tie it and it fits. Mm -hmm. But you go down through a, a tremendous number. Now, I suppose uh, a number has been postulated, uh, but about 1,008 is, uh, is a pretty safe number. But anyway, we take all this time and we come down and then we're in relative existence. And we're just the most primary form of existence. It's almost like you can't even yet say life because mm. life presupposes consciousness. So anyway, we then begin creating uh, levels of material existence. So we kind of grow into that, and that's called involution. Until we come to a point where all right, we're ready to begin function in the relative world, and that function having an effect on us. And then ultimately, when we're further uh, involved, uh, it will have some effect on uh, what's around us in our environment. So anyway, when we finally, we come to that, then we begin to evolve. In other words, we're taking the steps and really baby steps, minuscule steps to go out then of, of this field of change and growth. And of course, I don't think anyone's estimated, not even in India, but we're talking about far more than billions or trillions of years in between which there will be uh, the end of the creation cycle because creation comes out 
lasts an exact amount of time. It dissolves and is dissolved for an equally uh, long time in which the individual consciousnesses that are sort of embedded in, in a dreamless sleep uh, assimilate all that happened to them in the many lives uh, from the beginning until that creation cycle ended. And that goes back and forth many, many times. So we can't even mm. count the number of bodies we've had, existences we've had. For example, there are insects that are born, live a few hours, and they die. I mean, that's the way their incarnation goes. And uh, when, when we lived in California, we lived in the low desert in a place called Borrego Springs. And, uh, of course, it was a vast desert. And we learned that actually millions of years before, there had been brine, brine shrimp, tiny, tiny little little organisms. Um, I don't think anymore that in, in books they advertise with what they call sea monkeys. But hmm. if anyone's old enough to remember ads about sea monkeys, the sea monkeys were not monkeys at all. They were brine shrimp. And they would hatch in water and people could theoretically watch them. And there's not much to watch. But anyway, they would swim around. All right. Anyway, <laughs> There were brine shrimp eggs in the in, on the uh, the floor because really uh, the whole desert there was an ocean floor. So whenever we had rain to any extent, which wasn't much, it was usually only about once a year. If there was a puddle of water formed, these eggs would hatch out. And they would go through a whole life cycle and lay eggs by the time the water evaporated. When the water evaporated, they died if they hadn't died earlier. Wow. And so a single egg, you depending on where the rain took place and how much it took place, you can imagine how incredibly long that took. Mm-hmm. Uh, for 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 those eggs to for an egg to hatch out waiting and waiting and waiting when we then get to some uh levels insect life uh we're often born like in hundreds a family of hundreds a fly just has hundreds of eggs and uh it's born and you only live the lifespan of a fly and uh, then you come back but by when this cycle is running the good part about that is somebody say steps on you as a fly it kills you and within hardly a minute or two boom you're back into incarnation mm. okay so that goes that goes very fast so anyway slowly slowly we climb up, 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 up the ladder. Frankly, I think of a, of a kangaroo. You know, the kangaroo, the embryo develops for a while, uh, you know, inside, inside the, the mother. 
and then it comes out through an opening in the kangaroo's pouch. That is an inside opening and actually crawls up the pouch to where there's a nipple that it will nurse from. And it uh, puts its mouth around the nipple. The nipple swells so that the little creature is actually hanging from it in the pouch. And then it begins to nurse, et cetera, et cetera. And all that development takes place. Now, just think, this is the utter complexity of a so-called lower level of life. So just think of what it takes to become a human being. Yes. To just, to just be conceived as a human being. So, of course, animals are, are aware. They're instinctual. They're not intellectual as a rule. Though if animals stay for a long time around uh, human beings that are of irrelevant intelligence, they begin to develop that faculty. I mean, really, I, I've seen, I've seen, oh yes, uh, uh, I, I knew a dog that could conceptualize, and I mean, could project and imagine something that might happen. Uh, he was unusual, but he was he wasn't unique. Mm. So finally. Though, but they never ask, what am I? Who am I? And then when we come uh, to birth is a very, uh, of course, naturally we'll start out uh, in the in the family, the simian family, and come up to, say, the great apes. And uh, then finally we get into a primitive human being, uh, which again just sort of runs and lives very, very, instinctually uh, just sort of hunts and kills and eats and does it over and over again and has uh, offspring as a rule and then sometime dies and hasn't given any thought to it. But after a while, there's sort of, what am I, what am I doing here arises. And there's exploration of that. Who knows how long that will take? How many lives? Until it's why. Why am I here? That takes a goodly level of development to have the idea of purpose in something. I mean, think of the way animals live. They just kind of go, they see something they like, they want to eat, they get it, they eat it. Mm -hmm. They don't think, how, how is this here? Uh, especially your your frugivorous vegetarian animals, they they graze, but they don't think, where did this come from? Where where did this plant occur? They don't even have the idea it's a plant. It's a something that they want to assimilate, and they do. So again, you can imagine how tremendously evolved a human being has got to become before they can ask just these simple questions meaningfully. What am I? Who am I? Why am I here? And then to begin to think, well, what am I going to do with myself? Mm-hmm. So what it takes just to get to that level is incredible. And then, of course, we bounce back forth from life to life. We, we progress a little bit, then we regress a bit. 
and because it's all spotty. And as I explained in Robe of Light, we're really intended to say, just become a squirrel and live in a squirrel body until we're absolutely perfectly able to control that body and that level of consciousness that is a squirrel's. Mm. And then we just don't get sick and something doesn't kill us uh, in an ideal uh, situation. We just leave the body and go into the next higher form. And we keep living that way until we perfect ourselves in it. Unfortunately, uh, we live in a flawed universe. And let's not go into that. Uh, I can say, read my book. And uh, uh, so it keeps getting interrupted. Yogananda actually wrote a whole article about this, mm. that the negative force, the satanic force in the universe uh, created this awful situation where we're continually interrupted by death. Yes. And, uh, and therefore come back seemingly blank. All of the subconscious impressions are there. All of our experiences are there. You might be interested to know that the motion picture actor, Glenn Ford, once experimented with past life recall and record and recalled being a lion in one life, which rather shocked him because hmm. <laughs> he figured he'd always be a human. So anyway, this comes under this point to where then we realize there are things that make me better. There are things that make me worse, just as there are foods that make me healthy, foods that make me sick. And we, we move along that with what can I do to make it better? But most people don't. It's usually, what can I do to get that job? What can I do to get that money? What can I do to get that person to marry me? What can I do to get my children to listen to me? Uh, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we spend our life running in a hamster wheel with these little, comparatively speaking, little goals and, and little ideals. And then finally, uh, we sit down and say, how do I get beyond this point? How do I grow beyond this point? How do I know beyond this point. I remember I came to a point kind of like that when I was, oh, uh, let me think, try to think back. Let's say I was about 11 or 12. And uh, I came from a very religious family Mm -hmm. and went went to church three times a day, three times a week, not a day. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, 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 ministers, uh, it was a Protestant church, ministers with a spiritual authority. And so I used to think how I wish I could find some minister who really was wise and whom I could trust. And I would just say to him, you tell me what to, and of course I wanted to, to live with him. And then I'd say to him, you just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Mm. And that I would trust my spiritual development to being told. Well, uh, that's very nice, but it doesn't happen. And unfortunately, people fall into the trap 
of uh, eventually of meeting an extraordinary person, an outstanding person, and in the context of yoga, fall into the trap of, oh, a guru. I found the guru. Now everything is all set. I just do what I'm told, and I'll develop, I'll develop, I'll develop. Guru may die before I die, but that doesn't matter, because when I die, the guru will come and take me to higher worlds, and the guru will guide me to the infinite. This is absolutely pure bunkum. Uh, if you don't guide yourself to the infinite, you'll never get to the infinite, which is, is a very important idea which people don't like because we want to remain children. However awful childhood really is, mm -hmm. we still have that ingrained in us. We want mommy and daddy to take care of us and everything to be fine. And that isn't the way it works because what is an adult? An adult is a self-sufficient person who is from then on moving through and as much as possible creating their own life. And uh, that doesn't mean that we don't finally come at a point where we're aware there is a world that's an invisible world. It's a greater and more true world than that. And that there is an absolute being which is regulating all this world, which is enlivening and making our evolution possible. And this, of course, is where religion comes in. If we have tiny, petty, or even negative ideas of God, then we follow those and we ourselves often become uh, petty and tiny, negative, negative people <clears throat> because uh, you become, yes, you, your health reflects what you eat. So your spirit reflects what you, in a sense, take in spiritually. So uh, actually, it's very interesting. Uh, about an hour ago, uh, I was I was out outside uh, talking to our father Seraphim, and he told me about an article that he had read, uh, in which uh, a woman spoke about spiritual growth, development, attitudes, and how she had noticed that there were people who would adopt a particular form or strain of religion, and they would grow. They would increase. They would become more stable. They'd become more positive. But she saw people that joined other forms that became little, selfish, negative, grasping, discontented, and disgruntled people. And that's because of their concept of God. Because after all, uh, it, is, it is normal for the child to want to be like the parent. It's, that, that's just a, a normal thing. So subconsciously, we begin to, we talk about being a child of God. Well, children uh, are like their parents. They look like their parents, and oftentimes they act like their parents. And so this happens in religion. So 
finally we evolve and we come to a point where we know there is such a thing as evolution. And for a while we think it's what we do that will evolve us. I will be kind to people. I will help people. I will be truthful. Uh, we'll think of all these principles that are good and positive. And as we keep them, we do grow slowly, slowly from life to life. But then the time comes where we understand or somebody tells us and then we're able to understand that our evolution truly is interior, not exterior. The exterior is just symptomatic of the interior change. Of course, it will reflect, but it won't, it won't cause it. So we have people that think, oh, if I go around and I'm, I do all kinds of charity, I'm going to be a loving, caring person. But they're not. They may be utterly selfish people. Uh, unfortunately, social action and social justice, whatever that means, yes. uh, has become a complete substitute for morality, decency of behavior, and a spiritual view of things. So, all right, Father Seraphim also told me about an interesting person that talked about how as he grew up, he saw people that made a mess of things around them and other people who made things better. And he saw that they were of two distinct kinds. Those that thought the answer was outside them and those that realized the answer was inside them. And he said when he was 18, he suddenly realized the number one and perhaps the only problem I have in life is myself. That the self has to be developed. So we we do that and we we work we work with it. There are books all about becoming a better person, et cetera, et cetera. But then, as I say, we do come to realize it's all inside. What will I do then that is inside? And the problem is because there is a delusive force in the universe and in ourselves, then all kinds of things arise that say, oh, this is the way to do it. Just yesterday, uh, we came across uh, a, an ad for a book for sale online. And it went on about how to power pack your brain <laughs> and this and this and this and kind of turn yourself into a super person, you see. Mm. And and then there are those that say, no, I will tell you the way. You see, here's this person. They came to earth. That was God. Now, all you've got to do is worship them, worship them, worship them, pray to them, pray to them, pray to them. Uh, and you'll go to God. Then when you die, you'll go to their world. And uh, again, it's then you'll get to reborn in the spiritual nursery where daddy, God, and mommy, God will do everything for <laughs> you. The very, the very thing you're supposed to have outgrown on earth, the very desire, then you get it. So everyone is saying, I know the way, I know the way, I know the way. And then, of course, there are more sophisticated ones. They say, you are the way. The way is in you. It's self-knowledge. 
It's self-realization. Well, that's really good. And then you say, all right, please, I want to know who I am. And therefore, in that greater context to know or small context to get the greater knowledge of who is God, Brahmagyana. And then they say, well, all you've got to do is just sit and say, and then they gave you some little formula that is supposed to tie you to the incarnation of God. Or better yet, oh, here, breathe through your nostrils alternately. And as you do, imagine that uh, little currents of energy are going here and there in the body. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, you have many... Uh, pools of energy in your body called chakras. You got to develop the chakras. You got to open the chakras. Then, which is a real step toward going out of your mind, kundalini and awaken kundalini. But see, you are not kundalini. Kundalini is, is shakti the way most supposed yogis know it. Though in reality, it's primal consciousness. So people who teach you to manipulate energies, are, you're never going to get there. You're never going to get to consciousness. You'll be able to control consciousness. You'll be able to do things. I remember when I was just a beginning yogi, and boy, do I mean just a beginning yogi, I had heard some of some supposed yoga healing exercises, so on. And uh, a friend of mine, ran into something and just was suffering agony uh, in, in in their foot. And so uh, I did what I had heard you did and then touched the foot. Mm -hmm. And almost suddenly, it just stopped. The pain went away. Hmm. Um, yes, you see. So... Um, Earlier times in my life, when I was just very young, just still in grade school, uh, I learned I could touch people and, and just pray to God and they would get better. Uh, I had a grandmother who was a tremendous healer. She, I mean, she worked incredible miracles. But anyway, but you've got to get beyond that because that's still part of the movie. Okay. You, you want the movie to end and leave the theater and know truly who am I, who am I? So ultimately, you, you could spend lifetimes being a yogi, even a super yogi, and, and, and back you come again. You could even be worshipped by other people as an incarnation of God. Oh, think of what it was like. And your mind has been stretched out, the field of energy of the mind, and you're not energy, you're consciousness. But your mind was powerful, and you would know things, and you'd know about people, and uh, uh, you know know their names. In my sadhana, in my useless sadhana, <laughs> because I've spent decades playing with my toes like an infant, and being astounded in in what my toes could come up with, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, I, I had a time in my sadhana where I knew a person's name the moment I saw them. Hmm. Okay. Well, that was really annoying. Who wants to know the names of everybody that you see? What are you going to do with it anyway? 
But you see, you can say, oh, hello, Jimmy, how are you today? And they think, oh, are you my guru? Hmm. You know, oh, 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 he knew all about me. I remember there was one of the leading yoga frauds of the 60s who didn't know anything about yoga. Uh, but he was an Indian, had come to America, and he found out that that was the fad. So he uh, created his own system of meditation, which I won't go into, but it was actually funny if it wasn't the fact that people got caught in it and it was tragic. Mm. And I heard people talking about him. They say, I know he knows everything about me. Oh, yes, said another person. You know, when I'm with him, I just know he knows everything about me. Well, what good is that going to do you? You need to know everything about yourself. So you see, that horrible dependency on something external uh, takes a long time to break. Mm. A long time to break. And there is no out the door until you quit sitting and saying, tell me, Master, about the door. How many panels are in the door? What's the door made out of? Who made the door, Master? You understand? Yes. I kind of like to <laughs> yeah. imagine it as crossing the finish line. That's that's how I think about it. Yes, exactly. Rather than to sit back beyond the finish line mm -hmm. and say, Oh, Master, who made the racetrack? <laughs> oh, Master, who? In whose wisdom? Was was the finish line made? Why did the finish line go that way? Why did wasn't it another way? Why was the finish line that color? And they say, well, I don't know if you're ready for this, but if you will be able to spend, say, some years with me, then when you're ready, I'll be able to tell you all about it. <laughs> you get the idea. So until you rid yourself of all that type of thing and say, it's me and me alone. And I have got to know myself, not know myself through another person. Uh, I, uh, uh, when I was a novice in an Eastern Orthodox monastery, the uh, abbot told me that he had gone to visit um, a monk who had a great reputation for being a saint and for being really pretty much omniscient. And so he went to see him, and he was truly, truly amazed at this person who definitely had a very developed consciousness. And uh, anyway, when he was leaving, he said to the saint, please pray for me. And the saint said, no, I won't pray for you. I can't eat for you. I can't sleep for you. I can't breathe for you. You do that yourself and you pray for yourself. So interesting. See, yes, but you see, most people are addicted to something or enslaved to something. So when they think they come up to spiritual life, they still have the addiction to addiction. Mm. So they have the addiction to servitude. And they still want someone to say, from this moment on, everything is right. I am taking charge of everything. Don't you worry. Like the way is clear from this moment on. But after 30 or 40 years, there hasn't been any change at all. Hmm. 
you know, I mean, I, a man wrote to me and said he had practiced what what his uh, yoga cult called uh, the most powerful and most advanced yogic method known in the history of man. And he had been doing it for nearly 30 years and had made no progress whatsoever. And he wrote, this is really sad, he wrote asking me what was wrong with him. Oh, wow. Because you see, he couldn't take the very simple step of saying, there's nothing wrong with me. This this yoga is crap. And frankly, the guru who 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 brought it to me was a craphead. And uh I've got to get I've got to get, I've got to truly cut the crap in a very very real way of seeing things. Uh <laughs> that's this is all very bombastic, isn't it? I didn't figure things were going to take this uh, way, but I will say this, and then let's get back to the evolution. Okay. Uh, I was reading a, a very, very excellent article written oh, about uh, uh, 80 years ago or so by a not yogi. Uh, that's a particular type of yogi that you just uh, centered uh, in, in Western India. And now I realize I should have mentioned it because I don't want to take up your time. But these are very, very special yogis. Yes. And they are considered perhaps the original yogis. Well, anyway, the not yogi says, no one can take you to God. No one can show you God. You and you alone can evolve and open your eyes and in God and see God. Therefore, if we take the word Sadguru, which can either be thought of as true guru or guru that shows you the true, that is only a person that can tell you how to do it. And then you do it. And then you get the vision, and behold, as a great saint Devananda said, I alone know that I am both master and disciple. And it's interesting, he says, I alone know, because all around him people are saying, oh, Guruji, 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 and yes, I went to the Mayas to find the Guru, blah, 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 blah. So rare is a person who knows, I didn't need to find a guru in that sense, I needed to find myself. And fortunately, I found somebody who just said to me, hey, this is how you do it. And that was the end of it. That was the end of it. I read a really interesting account some years ago of a young man who was sort of in what we call spiritual ferment. And he actually went um, to the marketplace. This was in in uh, the Himalayan regions in India. And he saw, uh, he saw three people there that just the sight of them struck him. And he just knew these can't be ordinary people. They're, they very definitely, uh, they know something. And I'd like to know what they know. So he went up to one of them and said, look, 
Uh, I've tried all kinds of things and I've read books, etc., etc. I have a feeling you know. So will you let me, will you, uh, basically, will you teach me? And the man said, yes. He said, um, the three of us are leaving uh, mid-morning. So why don't you come back here to the market at dawn? And we'll be here. And uh, you, you, know, you can learn. So he even thought, well, maybe he'd like go away to the far high Himalayas with them be there in the hidden fastnesses and all the things that that sound good in a book. But he went and the three sat there and they just talked to him very, very simply. And they did indeed tell him procedure because that's what yoga is. It is a procedure. Um, and then after a couple hours, they said, well, that's it. Uh, if you just keep going, we know you'll do well. And they start walking away. And he said, but wait, but wait, where do you live? And they said, what difference does it make to you where we live? Uh, if you don't do it, nothing will occur to you. And if you do do it, you won't need us at all. So goodbye. And away they went. Wow. Uh, yeah, I knew a great yogi in India who... When he was nine years old, he was he was a villager in Kashmir, and uh, he was he was nine, and he was just he was lucky; he didn't have to go to school, and <laughs> so he was. Uh, yeah, village life had its uh, in the early days had its advantages. So he was just you know, fiddling around out in the street of the tiny village, and this elderly man came by who was a yogi. And he just said to him, uh, I want you to come with me. So he just walked along with him. But when they got beyond the village and uh, where there was no one else around, the yogi told him what to do. He gave him the, the uh, uh, practice for really opening consciousness. And said, now do this all the time. It involved mantra, you see. It involved yes. sound. The root of, of existence is vakya, is the power of speech. And he said, do this all the time. And he walked away. Well, he did it. He was only nine, but he did it. And he did it through years. And when I met him, he was just an incredibly supernatural person. I'll never forget. In fact, as I'm talking to you, I can see him in my mind's eye, the first sight I ever had of him, that uh, there was a huge crowd and we were all in, uh, in a huge living room in a big house in India. And uh, the moment I saw him coming from a distance, I knew, oh, this, this, is, this is the one. <laughs> this is the one we've come to see. And uh, you know, and he came and sat down and fortunately, uh, these friends of mine had gone early enough. We were right on the front row. And there I got to just sit and revel in the sight of this utterly, again, evolved, virtually transmuted man. And through the years, when I'd go back to India, I would, I would see him. And uh, he, again, was one of these genuine teachers. 
he would say, now I'll teach you what to do. And that's it. That's over. I am not your guru. I'm not even your guru when I'm teaching you. Teacher, yes. Acharya, yes. You see, they like to misquote. Let me step aside from the story. They like to misquote the Upanishadic saying, let your father be to you as a god. The word is deva, not as God Almighty, but they like to say, May, let your father be as God you. Let your mother be as God you. Let your guru be as God you. Well, the word is acharya in the text. It isn't guru. And and it's deva, of course, which is like a great radiance to anyone. Think of an archangel. So respect them like that. Okay. So anyway, so he said, I will teach you, but I will never, you never can call me your guru, and I'll never call you my disciple. And when they would say, well, why? He'd say, it's easy. Uh, it's very likely you won't do what I tell you to do. Instead, you'll do something I never told you to do. And you'll blame me forever for all, for all the problems that, that you ever run into. Oh, man. And so, <laughs> and he said, and, and by the way, Buddha said a similar thing. He said, and you will tell them I teach things I don't teach, and you'll tell them I don't teach things that I really do teach. So mm. there you are. And actually, when I met him the last time, there are about four or five um scholars from uh, from Western India. This was up in the Mayan foothills where I was. And they had come there and they were going to be there for a month. And in a month, he was going to tell them and they'd get used to it. And he could say yes. And they had, you know, experiences. Yep, that's it. This is what it means. And then away they went. And that was it. And uh, now they knew what he knew. Very interesting. So, uh, <laughs> so th this is the way it works. So, evolution cannot it, it one, one in one level it comes from outside you in a sense that the whole cosmos is an evolution machine that is working toward it. Hmm. But inside you is the real machine, is the real evolution. It's the primary evolution machine. And I'm not talking about chakras and nadis and this, all of which are there and all of which a real yogi knows about, of course, but he learns by experiencing himself and he sees it for himself. But he knows that you can't mistake the, just the wheels of a car for, a, for the whole automobile. And so all the inner mechanisms we do need to know them and we do need to use them, but we step out beyond that. This is, uh, yes, notice we came in, this the world is like a network, all interrelated, but a network is also a net. And we have to get out of the net. And uh, that's what evolution is all about. And nothing can evolve. By the way, life itself will not evolve you experiences itself, they will not evolve. They will develop you. They can even make you intellectually wiser. I don't deny that. They can even make you insightful. But that's still just the pre-plan. 
Okay. Leading up to the real thing. That, that's so very, very important. So really, ultimately, what is the whole universal process of evolution? It's yoga. It is conscious union with the divine. We've always been in unconscious union. So we don't need to become one with God. We are God. You can't be separated from God for a moment. We don't need to become perfect. We already are perfect, but we don't we we don't know it. Uh, let me tell you an interesting story. Okay. Um a friend of mine, uh American a yogi friend of mine, uh was very close to Anandamai Ma, whom you read about in autobiography of a yogi. Yes. And so one time he went from, he, he lived in an ashram in central Bengal. I'm sorry, he lived in an ashram in central Bihar. So he went a long trip, a long ways, and he spent uh, a few weeks with Ma Nandamai. And at the end of that, you know, he bade her goodbye and he went back all the way to Bihar. And when he got to the ashram, they said, oh, there's a telegram for you. And when he opened the telegram, it said, Ma asks you to come back immediately. So he, the ashram he was, uh, where he was living, was only one block from the railway station. So he walked back down the block and got the next train and took a long journey and came in, you know, and there was Ma, and he saluted Ma. And he said, uh, well, Ma, what do you want? And she said, oh, I, I just wanted to see you. And he said, Ma, you can see me all the time. You're everywhere. <laughs> and she said, she said, yes, but you don't really know it. Mm. So, <laughs> so. Jnana, that's why jnana is such an important word. It's real knowing. Jnana is not saying, oh, there is but one, and there's this and that, and there is the absolute, and uh, immortal self am I. That's not jnana, that's talk. Jnana is, is knowing. And, uh, and that is the capstone of evolution. And of course, the interesting secret about it is that knowledge was with us in the depths of our being before we even came into relativity. And it is that that has brought us up the ladder, though we credit that ascent to other things and to people and to events and our own doings, but uh, that isn't so. So in the beginning is the end. Mm. And uh, and that's kind of basic about how I see evolution, which is, of course, little more than a pinpoint of what is true, because this entire relative existence is so vast. So, uh, and it isn't even what I'm saying almost isn't even the truth about it. It's hints about the truth. And and you can get beyond the hint and find the tr truth that's behind the hint, if that makes any sense. Yes, um, you've you've answered a lot of my questions. 